If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Heather George. She's an acute care SLP at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, James Cancer Hospital. She has earned ASH's Distinguished Early Career Professional Certificate and Ohio State University's Clinical Excellence Award for Excellence in High Standards in Clinical Care. Heather has had the opportunity to work in various settings, including acute care, inpatient rehab, outpatient, and long-term care. Her clinical interests include management of the palliative and hospice patient, as well as dysphagia and communication management for the medically complex, critically ill, and tracheostomy-dependent populations. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Heather. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. I'm so excited. Yeah. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I am Heather George. I am a speech pathologist in Columbus, Ohio. I work at the James Cancer Hospital. I have been a practicing therapist for six years now, and I work with oncology patients. So the James Cancer Hospital has a unique setup. Um, So we have an outpatient speech pathology team that also crosses over to acute care, and they work with the head and neck cancer patients. And I cover all general oncology patients other than that. So I work 
work with patients with lung cancer, esophageal cancer, brain cancer, and I even have patients on caseload with prostate cancer and pancreatic cancer. So we're seeing patients with various levels of frailty and debility through their cancer treatment, which is why we might have patients on caseload that you wouldn't commonly expect to have a dysphagia related to their cancer. And then we also see patients, if they come in with a stroke or respiratory failure, but they have a cancer diagnosis, they would come to our hospital and we're covering people through, like I said, new workup of cancer. And they might also be here on our caseload receiving active radiation and or chemotherapy treatment. All right. So fascinating. That's such a, thank you. That was so well said. Other than such a fascinating job. Yeah. It's a wild like niche that I didn't realize was actually out there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, how many, you know, especially in acute care, there's so many patients that you see with dysphagia that also have a separate, you know, active cancer diagnosis. So exactly. Interesting. All right. So where, where should we start? What do you want to talk about today? Yeah. So I, with transitioning over to this area of practice, I came in with this mindset of rehabilitation, right? So we start out in our field and we just want everyone to get better, go back to their prior level of function and return to how they know of themselves. And I quickly learned that in this oncology population, that is not often the case. I'm seeing patients who are living through extended palliative phases. And I have a lot of patients in the end of life hospice stage on my caseload. And I quickly learned that I had to kind of wash my mind of solely rehabilitation when working with these patients and navigate to more of a palliative focus. And this is something that I became really passionate about. So wanted to just discuss the role of that we have in palliative care when working with dysphagia. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let's dive in. Awesome. So I think it's important to just kind of mention, you know, with rehabilitation, um, there are differences between the two rehabilitation and palliative care. And they, but there are a lot of similarities. So with rehabilitation and palliative medicine, we recognize that health-related quality of life effects of physical and psychological impairments is really important. They both use interprofessional teams to evaluate and treat their patients. They both use patient-directed goals for treatment, and they share a common goal of using multimodal approaches to manage pain and other symptoms that might be debilitating, but where palliative care really starts to transform is that we're shifting focus to quality of life, maintaining functional independence, and managing their functional decline. And when we start to navigate that with our traditional role in dysphagia, we know that when we see patients working in on dysphagia, we are trying to maximize their swallow for oral intake, optimize their pulmonary health, you know, optimize their nutrition. And we want to identify this underlying medical or functional cause that we can rehabilitate. But what do we do with these patients that have chronic dysphagia? What do we do with patients who continue to decline and we know are presenting with diagnoses and risk factors that we are likely not going to see improvement in? So we live in this world where treatment often is compensatory and or rehabilitative. And that mesh of care is often multifactorial depending on the patient. So we use the motivation and endurance of the patient when we consider rehabilitation, if they're appropriate for it. We're working to minimize the effects of changes in their health status as we're rehabilitating them, and we're trying to optimize their function. Whereas for compensation, we're maximizing their current function and their quality of life. So we need to really consider 
how these two recommendations go hand in hand when we're working with patients, particularly with more chronic dysphagia. So when we think about compensation rehabilitation, we need to really understand the patient's medical diagnoses, what they're here in the hospital with, and what our role and our anticipation for um, their care is going to be. So with these patients, we have assessed them with a modified or a fees, hopefully, and we are now trying to understand how the varying layers of their entire medical picture are impacting the trajectory of their care. We need to understand what the likelihood of seeing improvement in their function and assess the risks that the patient might be presenting with in regards to aspiration and safety and efficiency with their swallow function. So when we move on from this com compensatory strategy rehabilitation approach, as we are trying to target treatment with these patients, we need to understand how the patient's degree of severity of their swallow is as assessed on a modified or a fees. And this will help us understand how the medical picture overall connects to the patient's trajectory of care as we mesh dysphagia care and their overall medical picture. And there's a lot of questions we need to ask ourselves. So we do the modified barium swallow or the fees. We see that a patient presents with dysphagia. And the next thing we say is, you know, so what next? What is the likelihood for improvement? How are we going to approach this patient? What is the plan of care we're going to take? And how does this fit in with the patient's medical status and overall plan? And when we're working with these people, our goal is typically, like we've talked about, for improvement in function. But what happens when we're working with these patients and the initial improvement in function um, or the initial what happens when we're working with these patients and we're not seeing that improvement in function as quickly as we think we may be seeing? What happens when we do the evaluation, the modified or the fees, and we're seeing that the patient's dysphagia is fairly severe and the reason for their dysphagia is more chronic? So I have on caseload oftentimes patients that have lung cancer with mediastinal involvement, and they might have mass effect on the recurrent laryngeal nerve that ends up resulting in sensory impairments, timing and coordination impairments, and potentially severe dysphagia. Just um, as I also have patients on caseload with skull-based tumors, and these reasons for them to present with a dysphagia is the dysphagia is not going to change because of my intervention. I'm not going to be able to do exercise-based treatment with these patients and expect to see their swallow function completely return to their normal baseline prior level of function. Yeah. So it's important for us to think about these patients in these situations, understand what the reason for their dysphagia is and what my role is in order to rehabilitate that swallow or fix it. And if there's a reason that I likely will not influence that patient swallow function in a changeable way, then I need to understand what it is about the medical status and care of the patient that will likely continue to evolve to help potentially see improvement or if we're not going to anticipate that at all. So for example, some providers, as the patient is undergoing radiation and or chemotherapy, they can directly tell us we do not know if this patient is going to improve and you're not going to even potentially see improvement in the swallow function, um, you know, for weeks or for months um, after they start receiving their chemo or radiation. And then the other times providers might communicate to us that we are not anticipating a lot of improvement from radiation and our chemotherapy, and we're already guarded about radiation and chemo. So we're not, we can't 
even begin to discuss how then that would play into the patient's swallow function when their swallow function is impacted by the cancer diagnosis, which then the improvement is that in real is related to their treatment. So yeah. we have all of these multifactorial components that make it really difficult to navigate because then what do we do with these patients? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is so fascinating, Heather, because I think I think this is definitely a different, a very different way of looking at swallowing, right? Like, you, like exactly what you said, we look at swallowing, what can we do to fix it? What exercises can we do to fix the impairments, right? And as you're saying, a lot of times there's just no easy answer. And I think that just really stems to sort of a bigger picture of knowing and understanding our patient's diagnoses and how that impacts what we're doing. And I think sometimes we just get this tunnel vision right on the swallow and forget to look at the whole big picture the whole body, everything that's going on and, and how exactly the specific diagnosis is impacting the patient. So thank you. I think this is a really, it's a, it's a definitely a twisted, not twisted. That's not the right word. It's a, it's an alternate approach to approaching a patient. Yeah. And it is, it's completely opposite of anything that yeah. we really learn. And that's kind of ingrained in, um, into us when we're in school and taking CEUs and it's this completely different way of thinking. And it even, it's to carry over into moments that you're working with the patient. So these patients, they're receiving so much information. They're receiving overwhelming options and they're trying to navigate these health and medical related situations where say they came in and they have a new cancer diagnosis. Their physician has now just told them what stage their cancer is, what their treatment options are, and, or if there's anticipated improvement, as well as how long um, they're expected to have to go through treatment or what their expectation is if they don't receive treatment in regards to their life expectancy. And then I walk into the room to work on dysphagia treatment. Yeah. <laughs> it's often not a priority of those patients. And, you know, but sometimes it is, and I'm not the person that should be deciding that either. Yeah. It's really important for us to take a step back and realize what our role is, what we're there to do and what's going on with the patient in that moment that can be impacting them. Um, and I think that we come from sometimes this situation where we're like, oh, this patient doesn't want to work with us. There's nothing we can do. But we need to realize that we have to understand and break down our patient's barriers. We need to understand what their concerns are, what their fears are related to their medical course in general, before we can even begin to continue targeting dysphagia. Yeah. Let me let me back you up a tiny bit because I, yeah. I love what you said about just different conversations that you have with providers. And I think that's a really interesting, it's a really good point because, you know, say a provider comes to you and says, hey, this patient's really guarded. We don't think radiation or chemo is going to have much impact on the cancer diagnosis, but the patient is begging you to come in and work with them and eat. Mm -hmm. How does that dynamic work out with your providers? Because I know in some facilities, they're extremely supportive, very patient-centered, and in others, it's like, no, Heather, don't waste your time. Like I told you, the prognosis is guarded. So I would love to hear how, how you sort of manage that dynamic in, in your facility. Yeah, so that's a great question. And it was something I struggled with when starting initially, just how to bridge these conversations. Mm -hmm. And Luckily, the physicians, the nurse practitioners and PAs, everyone here is fantastic and we do really well with our interdisciplinary collaboration. We typically, honestly, after we've done a fees or a modified, we will often call and talk to providers on the phone and lay out the acute versus chronic dysphagia risk factors and really have conversations about, listen, this patient is presenting with likely chronic dysphagia because of XYZ reasons. 
They are aspirating their safety and or you know, efficiency are both impaired per the modified. This is what we're seeing. But my concern is if I restrict them too much, then I am only going to do them further harm because I'm not anticipating improvement in their swallow function. And we have a really good thorough discussion about where our plan of care should go, including times where we'll talk to the provider. And if we are guarded and we do not feel like there's a lot of improvement to be likely had by the patient, the provider will sometimes say, you know, I agree with you. I think that is it is likely chronic, but I will say especially with cancer and response to treatment and side effects of some of the medications, they do typically tell us, you know, if the patient is willing and interested in working with you, as long as you lay out all of the options and the concerns you have and provide them with a comprehensive overview of why you're concerned and what their chronic dysphagia looks like in regards to functional improvement, then, you know, we're fine with you trying like maybe exercise-based treatment if the patient is interested in it. Um, but on the flip side too, how do we manage these situations where improvement is guarded, the patient does have impaired safety of their swallow, they're aspirating to whatever degree. And especially when we consider the aspects of aspiration risk factors for getting an aspiration pneumonia, you know, impaired immune status is a really important one. And in the oncology world, all of these patients have impaired immune health. Yeah. And that is one significant knock off of that. So we start having these conversations with providers about your patient is here with chronic dysphagia. They did not come in with respiratory concerns. They're not here with any new acute concerns that would cause a further complication to their swallow function in regards to their mentation isn't altered. They're not here with new oxygen needs. Um, and they're showing us that they're likely handling their aspiration. I think we need to continue letting them be on this diet supporting them in this more chronic phase of their life. And physicians typically come back and they completely agree with us, which is really great. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I love to hear that. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. I think sometimes people hear negative stories. So thank you for sharing the positive, positive yeah. stories. Yeah. I will say, you know, I mean, and this is one thing I wanted to kind of touch on too, is that we do live in this world, right? Where patients aspirate and there is this concern where we have providers who say, I don't want my patient aspirating. They can't end up in the ICU. They're going to be intubated and you have this spiral for it. And I really try to frame to providers, you know, we have patients with uncontrolled diabetes come into the hospital that have had a stroke or have all of these other negative outcomes because of their mismanagement of other health conditions or their intentional like decision to not manage certain other aspects of their health status. And if a patient is informed an understanding of their swallow function and the risks associated with them continuing with whatever their preferred diet is, it really is about affirming their decisions and respecting that patient autonomy. And those conversations can be really difficult to, to navigate, but really meshing bioethics with evidence-based practice has become something that we've tried to help 
endorse and advocate for with these patients because when we lay out all of these aspects of you know bioethics we're thinking about autonomy and non-maleficence beneficence and justice and how all of these things all go together um, how are we providing what all of our patients need and how are we making sure the patient is informed while respecting their decision and perspective but then we have non-maleficence where we're trying to not do harm to these patients and right aspiration is harmful. It's bad. It's awful. But it's not just that the decision and the discussion goes way beyond just aspiration. Um, the comp the decision is so much more complex than just what is the patient aspirating or are they not? And our job is to do good by the patient and really it's to support them making this decision for themselves. We have to respect the patient's autonomy and try, try to balance the principles all together while also communicating best evidence-based practice to them. And it's a really multi-layered discussion that is not consistent across each patient and it's different across providers and how it's handled. And it's truly the most important to think about the patient's lens and their perspective so that we listen to them and listen to what they want to make sure that we're supporting care that is directed by them. Thank, thank you, Heather. I think that was so well said. I, I think the toughest part of what we do is, is educating, but taking our bias away from it, right? Like, we know what we would want to do, or we know how our family would want to be treated, or we know what our mom said they would want, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, I think that's the hardest part is to really give the education and give the information without including any of our bias or what we might think that we might do. So thank you. I think that was really well stated because it, it is so complex and it's not easy. And so I, I don't want, if you're, you know, a new grad or a CF or in grad school thinking that, you're going to be, these conversations are easy. They're not easy. They, you know, I'm 15 years into it and they're still tough to navigate to make sure that you say the right things. And when I, when I say that, I mean, giving all, all sides, giving the, having the risk benefit conversation saying we can do this, but it might let, lead to this, or we could possibly do this, but this might happen. And just presenting all the options. And I know patients really appreciate when they are given all of the information that's not biased. Yeah, exactly. And that really is, I mean, like you said, we have to take a step away from our own personal biases. And I think our biases as practicing clinicians is so multi-layered as well, because we come at it from clinicians and we're like, yeah. no, this is how we have to do this. But then as a sidebar, we talk to each other about how we wouldn't want that done ourselves. <laughs> um, and yeah. I think that's really important to reflect on because if we're in the background saying, I will not go on thick and liquids, I would not do this to my family member. And yeah. it really shows just how influential, how we communicate things to patients and how we present the information can actually be. Are we going to scare them in the information that we're providing and make right. it sound awful if they aspirate? I mean, I've had a patient who had to be NPO for oncology specific reasons that the patient, we came up with this plan on how to just kind of target preserving swallow function as they were navigating this. And they came to me two months later and their physician told them if they aspirated that they were going to die, you know, and that presenting information in that way is very different than presenting information in a risk benefit discussion, including talking about 
you know, what happens when you don't continue to use or swallow function in your muscles and what does your swallow look like in regards to this chronic setting? So yeah, I, um, I think that our biases as practicing clinicians is such an important thing to have to reflect on and break down so that we're not influencing either physician or patient decisions, because how we phrase things to both physicians and patients, I think increases the concern and or severity just based off of the words we use and how we explain it to people who are unfamiliar. Yeah. Yeah. I really didn't, I didn't catch myself a few weeks ago, but I, you know, I, I presented just pros, cons, risks, benefits to this family. They were such a nice family, very involved, you know, just really wanted to do what was best for their dad. And I, I spent probably an hour with them, just went over so many scenarios. And then the, the, the woman said to me, okay, but if this was your dad, what would you do? And my answer was totally different. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you didn't say any of that. And I was like, I know. And I'm sorry. I said, I gave you my professional opinion, but if this was my dad, I would do X, Y, Z. Yep. And she was like, well, why? And I, you know, I went into it. And then after, like, it was one of those things that kept me up all night. Cause I'm like, oh my God, should I have not have said that? Or should I have led with that? Or, and it's tough, you know, it's like as professionals, we know what we know, but then as people, we also know what we know. And I think it was just a good, it, it was a very good lesson for me. Cause I did go back and I saw, saw them on Monday and, you know, I just explained a little bit more of why I had some different approaches, but it was good because I think, you know, now I'm more cognizant of that. And I, and I will lead with sort of both examples, you know, this is one side of it and this is another side of it. And there's no right or wrong answer. It's whatever, you know, you guys feel is, is best for you, but that was, you know, like I said, I'm 15 years into it and that was still like a golly, that was a tough lesson for me, (laughs) for me to go through. So it's hard. And you really like, no one teaches you how to have these conversations with patients and their family members. And you're right. I mean, these conversations are very long. Typically they take a lot of time. I mean, I tell patients and families that I'm essentially trying to teach them my entire degree and knowledge base in this, these few minutes to help them really understand their swallow function. I need them to understand the reason for their dysphagia. I need them to understand you know, the anticipated improvement, they need to understand how to reduce risks of aspiration related pneumonia, that not all aspiration means you're going to get a pneumonia and so many layers to this is where I'm at. These are the, the many options. Um, and like you said, how, how do they navigate it? I have people that will ask me a lot too, what would you do? Or what do you think I should do? And I think another thing we're unfortunately incorrectly taught is that we can't give an opinion about what we might do if it was us. And we can, um, it's, you know, each clinician's level of comfort and in that situation. But like you said, I think it's really important for us to consider again, talking to these people beyond patients and families, but as just people that we're trying to relate to in making these really difficult decisions. And I think back to just difficult medical decisions that you might've had to make in your own life and what you wanted from the provider trying to talk to you about this and then trying to provide that to the families and patients. My biggest thing when talking to them and teaching students is helping people understand the why. Like I want you to fully understand the why behind these various things that I'm recommending or offering as options so that you feel like you can make the best decision for yourself and or your loved one. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. And that actually even goes to in doing a lot of this research and in the palliative world, um, the other thing that 
was truly career changing and just reflective for me was how do we document informed consent, right? Like how do we manage these aspects? So this patient has chronic dysphagia. We don't anticipate that they're going to improve. How do we manage our recommendations? Then the decision that the patient and family makes and then where that aligns with their medical world. So maybe they aren't hospice yet. And the patient and family are saying, you know, I really want to continue with my regular diet, thin liquids. I know that there's a risk of aspiration. I understand the, the various negative impacts that this can have for me. I don't agree with doing exercise-based treatment because I'm hearing that I likely won't get better. I don't want to use my time and energy in that way. How do we as providers document that the patient is understanding those layers and making the decision for themselves. And uh, Paula Leslie has some really great ethics articles and research out that really highlights how we need to show how the information was understood and evaluated by the patient and family versus us documenting what we did. I feel like we get into this world and then to this routine where we are saying, we taught this, we educated this, we, you know, trained this. And really what we need to be doing is documenting what the patient said, what the family did, how they demonstrated the understanding of all of the information that was provided to them to then make their decision. I love all that. Heather was very well stated. (laughs) Thanks. I feel like so much is like word vomit. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, I, this is not easy stuff to talk about. It's hard to put into words, but yes. think, yeah, you're doing wonderfully. So thank you. No problem. <laughs> Where I would like to go is just like, what's some information that you can give an SLP that they could maybe utilize like right away. So, mm-hmm. you know, say you're someone that's not used to having these tough conversations or you've never felt, I think a lot of this comes down to confidence too. You've never felt confident enough to, have these conversations, or I don't think it's really, it it depends in some, some graduate programs, they do a really good job of this. And some they don't is, is this your role? You know, is this, you know, I know some programs do a lot of of role-playing and, and, and counseling skills, and some just don't touch on it. So I think if you, you know, didn't get a lot of experience in this, you know, what some pieces of advice or maybe some resources for them to look into that, yes, this is our role. And Yes, there really is sort of an art to it too. And it's really, a lot of it just comes down to having some compassion and, you know, leaving your bias at the door and presenting the knowledge that you know and and, and know that it comes with risks and benefits and there is no right or wrong answer. I think that was the biggest thing. The biggest realization for me early on in my career was like, holy cow, there is no one right or wrong answer. You know, I, I used to say, oh, this is the best option And I was so wrong in saying that. And I'm okay saying that now, like there is no one right or wrong answer. It's whatever feels best for your situation. And we're just here to support that. So when working with these patients, I think what can be really difficult is as the clinician, thinking about how you're going to do this yourself. How do I navigate these situations and where do I even begin? And I think really breaking down, understanding I know I've said it earlier on, but understanding what the patient is in the hospital for, what are they presenting with? Are they acute concerns or chronic? And really trying to help understand the, really trying to understand the medical aspects to this patient so that you feel like you can have a more thorough discussion with them and providers. I tell all my students all the time, 
Once you understand the acute risk factors and the chronic risk factors, and you can kind of piece together what you're thinking the dysphagia is related to, you can have a lot more informed, confident conversations in the sense that you're not standing in the room making guesses and hunches with patients and families. And I think that's, you know, kind of step number one. And then moving to the next step is certainly an instrumental you need to be able to, you need to complete a phase or a modified to understand the dysphagia severity and what's going on with the swallow function in general. But then to have these conversations, I think a really great approach is starting with the physicians and the medical team. I don't, um, you know, from experience, having them on board with what you're then going to say to the family and the patient is really important. You don't want to go talk to the family and patient in a way that the medical team isn't prepared for or on board with um, just because you want to make sure you're capturing all other aspects of their care, that you're not missing a critical piece to it. And I think really having that discussion with the medical team over, you know, listen, this is why I think they have dysphagia. These are my concerns. You know, these are the options I'd like to lay out to the patient. What are your thoughts on this? And if, and then they'll provide you with what they feel like are good ways to navigate. And, you know, I think another layer to this difficulty is what happens when you do that to the medical team and they come back and communicate, well, I don't know, you're the one who recommends the diet or they say, absolutely not. No, this patient cannot aspirate. Um, and I think those can become very challenging situations to navigate when you're then you're trying to be this advocate for the patient. And I think it's important to then take a step back and again, try to understand where that physician is coming from and where their knowledge might be at and what we can do to help break that down so we can understand what their concern is or what their barrier is and provide more details. Um, and oftentimes I like to get, I like to have physicians on the phone so that we can have a verbal conversation about these layers so that if I'm feeling like the direction is being spiraled in a way that seems to be really against aspiration or really in targeted to one area, we can try to have a more robust conversation about how the patient is presenting and where we think appropriate direction for them would be in related to their options. And then I'll go talk to the patient and their family. And I think, um, you know, I took some courses on managing tough conversations and end of life care. And one of the critical things that I picked up from that was you can't talk to the patient when they're not ready for you to to be there and yeah. they're not ready to hear you. And so when I start these conversations with patients and families, I always come in and I introduce myself again and I explain why I'm there. And I say, you know, this is the type of conversation I'd like to have with you. Is now an okay time to do that? Do you feel like this is a moment where you could participate and kind of talk to me about these things? And sometimes yeah. I've had people say, you know, no, I'm really tired. This is not a great time. And, um, or, you know, no, this family member is not here and I'd love for them to be here um, where other times they say, yeah, this is perfectly fine. And I think first making sure we meet them at a moment in time where it's appropriate for them to hear the information and they're ready to hear it is really important because if we are word vomiting to them and they're not ready to listen, um, it's not going to do them or us any good. Right. Right. And then when we're sitting and navigating these conversations with patients and families, I think it's really important just to be as objective as possible when you're providing the information and, and not saying, you know, aspiration will always lead to this or aspiration won't lead to this. We really need to just say, this is what your swallow function looks like. 
These are the reasons that you are likely presenting with dysphagia. This is the safest, most conservative diet recommendation. This might be the next level diet recommendation that you could use with strategies. Or, you know, this is the absolute least conservative, the regular diet with thin liquids, knowing that XYZ things might be risks associated with this diet, and then laying out the patient-specific risk factors for getting maybe an aspiration-related pneumonia. And that might be that you tell the patient, you know, you do, your immune status isn't the best right now and your mobility is not the best right now. One thing you can do to try to target, you know, this is to improve your oral hygiene, make sure we're setting you up to be able to feed yourself if that's possible and help use the patient's strengths as ways to provide them with more information um, for what they can do to take active control over maybe reducing the risks associated with an aspiration-related pneumonia if they're choosing to be on this regular diet with thin liquids, knowing that there's risks associated with aspiration involved. Thank you. And I, and I love that you touched on the point about making sure that the family's ready. Cause that's something, you know, when I've had a lot of tough conversations about my son's care, I've, I've blatantly said to providers before, like, I'm, I can't, I don't have the capacity to absorb anything else today. Mm -hmm. So like, we're going to have to save this conversation for another time. Yeah. Um, and it's not that I'm trying to be disrespectful. I just like emotionally cannot handle it. Or I just know, like, I don't have the clarity to make the best decision in that moment. And I think for me, that was a big thing for me was just knowing you know, my limits and, you know, I want to make the best decision for him. And today is not that day to be able to make that decision. So maybe let's try again tomorrow. So I think that's something that's super important for, you know, anybody that's working in these complex cases, really understanding trauma informed care is just, you know, making sure that the other person or the family member, you know, they're, they're dealing with a lot. Caregiver burden is a real, real, real thing. And um, yeah, making sure that they're, they're okay. And they're clear to, to make those decisions. So Thank you for touching on that. I think that's such an important topic. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I even in those situations where maybe they did tell me, yeah, this is a great time. Go ahead. These conversations are really intense. They are so multi-layered and they just require so much processing and, and consideration from families and patients that after I'm done talking to them, I'll even take a moment to pause and just say, I know that was so much information that I just told you. I'm well aware that that was a lot. Do you in this moment have any questions for me? And then try to, to parse through that a little bit before I then proceed with further discussion on what treatment could look like. And, you know, earlier you asked about what happens when I may be not anticipating a lot of improvement from a patient, but they really want to work on exercises and laying out for them what a plan of care might look like if they wanted to receive exercise-based treatment while also discussing caution about response to treatment versus what it might look like if they decided they did not want to receive exercise-based treatment. And after this, like you said, you know, 30 minute hour long conversation, I then say to patients and families, I will be back here to see you tomorrow. So if you have any further questions, or if you need to get a hold of me today, this is how you do it. I don't want you to feel like this is the only time you're going to hear this information from me. And I don't need a set decision in this moment. And I think it's important to understand as clinicians, that just because a patient and family member make a decision in one moment doesn't mean they can't change that decision yeah. another day. Yeah. And we need to be evolving 
in our recommendations and how we're approaching them in the way that they might want to evolve their decisions. And that might even be that their medical status and medical plan is evolving and changing and they want what their plan is with us for dysphagia management to evolve and change as well. And we have to be aware of that, aware of those needs, anticipate some of that and be really flexible to be able to make those changes with the patient and help support them. Yeah. Let me ask you, Heather, do you guys have sort of like a bioethics department or like people that you can have, you know, sort of if these tough conversations arise, sort of a sounding board? Like I know some some corporations do have these, some don't. Yeah. Yes, we do. So we have the first, the palliative avenue that, you know, sometimes we might reach out to them, to the palliative, palliative team first and talk to them about what's going on. Like, for example, I had a patient with skull-based tumors and she, this was a very chronic year, years long, um, diagnosis. And she was in the hospital with something unrelated to the skull-based tumors. She was a known gross aspirator of liquids and foods. And we did another modified barium swallow and she's continuing to aspirate liquids and foods. And the medical team at the time was very concerned about this. And the speech pathology team, we were trying to advocate that this patient is a known aspirator. She's been aspirating for years. She's had no changes in respiratory status. And in that moment, we were able to pull in the palliative team and have a nice discussion with palliative, the primary medical team, and then our department. And then we were able to bridge a conversation with the patient palliative and our department just in regards to getting everyone on the same page, making sure that the patient fully understood what was going on and, and helped navigate this very complex situation where patient wanted to be on a regular diet, you know, thin liquids, primary medical team was really worried about it. And then palliative helped navigate those. But then in other situations, we do have an ethics department that we can consult in situations where we feel like there needs to be like an added layer of insight and like evaluation that is very like a perspective that is outside of the realm of the immediate providers and the patient. So they'll come in and do an assessment, figure out what's going on with the um, medical picture of the patient, what recommendations have been from providers, what the concern is, like why they're being consulted. And then they'll sit with the patient to have a really nice thorough discussion with them um, while they kind of review the patient's understanding and what the ethical role kind of is of us as providers um, providing treatment and management to the patient, um, you know, to the level of bioethics that we should be. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think sometimes people just don't know where to go. And I think there are sometimes resources that people can tap into. They just aren't aware of them. So yes, definitely. You. Yeah. And the other niche that I have found here that is really unique and different is how we support patients as they transition to hospice. I feel like there was this common practice pattern that was kind of taught, at least to me, that was, oh, they're going hospice, just sign off. They can eat a regular diet and go on thin liquids. They can do what they want. Um, but, you know, we have patients that they're going on hospice oftentimes because they either don't want to pursue treatment anymore or they're not responding well to it. And hospice might not be an imminent um, end of life. And they might live on hospice for, a, you know, a few weeks or a few months. and but they're presenting to us with severe cachexia, failure to thrive. They have many frailty markers and they are just extremely deconditioned. 
And maybe those are the reasons that the patient ends up having a severe dysphagia um, per a fees or a modified. And we're all consulted from these patients because of their dysphagia complaints. And even though these patients are on hospice, we will often, we don't automatically do it, but we'll go have conversations with the patient about how we can approach their care. And we address, you know, I understand that your goals at this time are to not continue to have procedures and testing, but we can offer this or this, the fees or the modified as options to assess what your swallow function looks like in this moment so that we can help assess you know, efficiency of compensatory strategies, assess safety and efficiency of your swallow function so that you know what's going on with it. And if they elect no for that, then we'll try to provide some very subjective opinions based off of our um, very subjective bedside swallow evaluation while disclosing to them that it is not an objective assessment, but we just try to really advocate and stress ways that they can help improve their, their swallow safety. But in the moments where patients are very interested, you know, they, their goal is to go home and eat and drink. What do we do for them when their dysphagia complaints are so severe and we want to support them having their favorite thing when they go home on hospice and these tends to be the, uh, my preferred instrumental of choice for those situations, because you have more time with the patient. You can go at their own pace. You have better um, capabilities for biofeedback so they can see what's going on. And in those moments, we will really prioritize patient goals with what we're assessing and how we progress and move forward from there so that we can set the patient up for the most insight into their swallow function that we can provide for when they go home so they can manage it the best. Um, like I had a patient who went hospice and he had severe dysphagia. He was not appropriate for alternate nutrition. Um, he could not have a PEG or a Dobhoffer uh, NG place because of the extent of his cancer. And that was ultimately the reason he decided to go hospice. So the patient understood what would happen with lack of nutrition and hydration, but we very much wanted to support his decision to have things by comfort for mouth in whatever capacity he could. And one of the things he said to me as we were doing the fees was he just wanted to be able to go home and eat a cheeseburger. Um, so we set up the fees in a very supportive way to be able to challenge him in the moment so he would know or at least hopefully anticipate how he would perform doing this on his own. And I think a lot of it in doing these assessments, not all the time with hospice patients, but in the situations where the patient is interested in it and does want it, I think it really does a great job supporting them in their decision-making when they go home to feel comfortable and confident in what their swallow function is like and what they should do because they're very fearful. They're fearful that they're going to aspirate and die from aspiration or that they're going to choke or they really want something, but they know that um, they can't clear it from their throat as effectively. So what do we do to manage it? And whether it's compensatory, a lot of it's compensatory strategies that we provide to them. But I think it's a really powerful way that we can help support these patients at their next level of care when they're already going hospice. And we previously thought that there was nothing we could do for them. Yeah, I, I I love these I don't love these conversations, but I, I love that we're having this conversation because mm -hmm. I feel like even I don't know ten years ago in our field, like these conversations did not happen. Mm -hmm. They just you know we're the SLP, we say this or that, um, or we're involved in these conversations or we're not. And so I love that we're being involved in these conversations now, and they're so 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 patient centered. You know, I feel like before we used to say 
you know, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't do this, or this is what's going to happen if you don't listen to this person. And it's just not, the reality of that is just not always the case. And we don't know that. And I just love that there's been such this huge culture shift in really, truly patient-centered care and honoring patients' wishes. And um, I just, it's one thing I love about our field. And I'm, I'm so proud that we've made these, these strides to be involved in these conversations and have a seat at the table. So. Yeah, I totally agree. We have such an important role in so many different aspects of our patient's care that I think it really helps support the value in us as clinicians in, you know, this medical world. And like you said, we really have a lot more opportunity to help support our patients in these ways that we weren't maybe taught before or doing before. And maybe some systems still aren't doing um, for various barrier related reasons, but they're really nice opportunities to help continue to make differences in our patients' lives in ways that we hadn't maybe considered previously. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I love this conversation, Heather. Is there anything, anything else you want to add? Any final thoughts? Um, oh yeah. The last thing I really just wanted to touch on was the, the whole non-compliance and refusal aspect, yes. um, in care for patients. And, you know, I, I feel like I read it often and I hear about it, but I just really wanted to emphasize and kind of pose a question about non-compliance and refusal um, because I don't feel there's no true such thing as non-compliance or refusal because in that regard, we're just ignoring the right to a patient self-determination. And are we as healthcare workers actually the non-compliant ones? Because it really should be a shared decision-making targeting impact options, consequences in a teaching way. And then we should be able to, to help support the patient's autonomy in their decision and value the patient's choice and decision. Um, And what we need to know what would be unacceptable consequences for that patient in regards to what their overall arching like goals of care are and showing that the patient is understanding and making the decision to not participate or making the decision to elect to have a regular diet within liquids versus having a modified diet texture or liquid consistency, I think is very different than phrasing it that our patient is non-compliant and refusing. I just yeah. think it's, um, yeah, the, the emphasizing that the food for thought that our patient's really non-compliant and refusing our care or are we truly just ignoring their right to self-determination? Yeah. I've been so cognizant of that, of, of how I've been writing that lately. I can't remember what I wrote the other day, but I was like, no, that sounds horrible. And I just said, you know, I, I suggested something, but patient declined, patient suggested this as an alternative. And this was what was agreed upon. And I was like, okay, that sounds so much better. Like, so it's just being cognizant of it. You know, it was, there was a way that we just used to write things Mm -hmm. and a way we used to say things and it's just not how it should be anymore. So yeah. Thank you, Heather. This was so, 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 so wonderful. And Oh my gosh, I've just loved watching your career. Of course, I, I've known you. Gosh, oh my God, your like entire career so far. So yeah, really. I, like this is, this is coming full circle for me. So <laughs> I, I thank you so much for coming on the show. And I love hearing all the wonderful things that you're doing. And I hope that this episode really helps, you know, even some new grads that may just be lost in a sea of, you know, counseling and, and how do we have these tough conversations and how do we deal with these tougher patient populations? So thank you so, so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. 
And that's our wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.